Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3, Denhenicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 2, Denhenicus and Dreamtime. Orf Leard Fenn. The Ford of Finstone. From what is it named? Why does no historian name it? What forgetting has blinded us since Finn left his stone there? When there fell, and great was the battle, fifty with thirty-nines, including the three victorious sons of Kirb who came along the stream from the northwest. When there fell in that ford four Connells, two Colmans, four Sweeneys, two sons of Breck, four Dufflucks, and two Diermuts. Flathgus, Finsgilly, turned his face towards the cry of the overmatched. He felled where he stood at bay, four fours and two nines. When he assailed the ford from the north, Flan, son of Fint Redbrows, he slew fifty, famous meeting that hound head of battle. When he was slain, the cause of the story, it put the troop into a heavy cloud of despair. The loss of the son of Connor from whom Finn slew that morning... When Setna uttered after that his word, a false gift, that the faith of true battle should be waved upon Oval, son of the Leinster men. Shinnan came after that, daughter of Mongon from the fairy hills. She gave a stone with a golden chain to Find, son of great jointed Oval. Then Finn stretched out his hand for the strong three-sided stone, and he gave a pledge by the head that was on the shoulders of Guragol who carried it, that he would not use, fierce his onset, anything but spear or sword or rapier. It was one of his getter after that. If he break it, may his side touch the ground in death. Then he hurled the stone into the ford when his battle frenzy came upon him. Shenok, Shenokorn and Bran were killed by that cast. So the stone came to rest then in the full broad green pool. Until at last it be cast up on the shore on a Sunday at the hour of matins. A girl will find it that morning, whose name is Bethina, Lady of the Wave. She will put her perfect foot upon the hoop of red gold. And a space of seven years after that will come the edge of Judgment Day. Never have I told a lie. That is the history of the Ford. The poem that I just told comes from the magical Dinhianicus, doesn't it? It does. Now, it's a story about the naming of Athlig in, Co- in County Roscommon. Mm. And as far as I know, the name means the Ford of the Flagstones. And yes. that poem seems to tell how it got its name. Yes. Well, so somehow, anyway. It does. Athlig Finn is Ford of Fionn's Flagstone. So, yes, that's awesome. It's, it's, it, but it's quite an unusual story, isn't it? It is, insofar as, as well as giving the origin of the name of the place, so the history, the literal history yeah, yeah. Um, it also includes this element of prophecy about the future 
Yeah, um, no, I can't think of many stories where this happens. Mm. I mean, obviously, I think it's a little bit later because it's talking about the Day of Judgment and etc. But it's still part of the story. Yes, it is. It's to do with, you know, the, this is a sign for the end of the world, is what they're telling us. <laughs> at Athlete. Starts exactly. at Athlete. Now we know where it's all going to happen. <laughs> the end of the world begins at Athlete. If yep. you've ever been to Athlete, it, well... Make your own mind up. Yeah. Now, I describe this poem as Dinhianicus, mm-hmm. and I'd understand this meaning a poem that gives knowledge about place names. Yeah, well, the literal translation of Dinhianicus is the history of prominent places, and it's a term that is, it's, I suppose, peculiarly Irish. Okay, okay, so when were they first recorded? I mean, when were they first written down and... Well, effectively, go on, tell us what they are. Well, there is listed a sort of corpus of knowledge that the poets and uh, the learned people had to have. And, you know, Dintianicus is is listed among those. Ah, So these were the set books. Exactly, yeah, set texts. Well, there was a huge amount of them. Um, The Metrical Dintianicus, which was published by Edward Gwynne as a collection in, Mm -hmm. I think, five volumes, it's a little bit misleading because it's not one unified set. Uh, it comes from all kinds of different manuscript sources. Um, you know, there's some fragments would be in one manuscript, another few poems in another. But he's kind of gathered them together under this title of Dinhenicus. Are they early Irish or Middle Irish? Well, uh, within the poetry, um, now the, the Metrical Dinhenicus, he's included some prose versions mm-hmm. at the end. But they're largely, a lot of them are Old Irish, but they do go into Middle Irish. So again, they were composed over quite a few centuries, you know, in a, in a good few different places. So it's a kind of mixed library. It is, and it's so mixed that we often get more than one version of a Dinhenicus. You know, I think the first volume of Gwyn's, they're nearly all Dinhenicus on Tara, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we discussed before, when we were looking at Shinnan, for example, that there are two versions, there's two whole Shinnan poems, but they're, they largely agree. But then the two poems on Bowen disagree quite strongly Mm -hmm. so sometimes you're getting just another poet's version of the same story but sometimes it's actually it's useful then for comparing and contrasting stories isn't it exactly and you don't even need to go as far as looking at different poems to get different versions one of the things i love about dinhenicus as a discipline is that very often the same piece the same poem will give more than one story more than one reason that the place has this particular name and they don't see that as contradictory Mm-hmm. And some they quite often say, whichever of these versions you prefer, then that's the real history of the place. <laughs> as well as having these distinctly Dinhenicus texts, these particular poems and stories, I would say that most Irish, old Irish narratives do have a Dinhenicus element to them. As in when I was speaking with uh, Dr. Ranka de Vries last week, and the name of her second tale was Added Echoch, the death mm-hmm. of Echoch, but it was really... A story of the origin of Loch Ness. Oh, I'd agree. I think you find um, a Dinhianicus element in just about everything. I exactly. mean, just go back to our last series when we were talking about Motora at yeah. quite some length. <laughs> and But j- just look at the number of places that turn up, like the bed of the couple and the river Unshin. Yes. Where the Dagda and Morrigan meet. Yeah. Or, um, and then places that don't necessarily appear in the story, mm. but are just there in the landscape, mm. like Lucite, Shilu. Yes. Yeah. Or, or um, the Eglone Stone, which is, again, it's, it's not a man-made artifact it's an it's erratic, erratic rock. very large erratic yeah um, on the plane of pillars exactly and and the local tale is that this is where the the dagda held the muster you know mm-hmm. so yeah it's always these little elements of the place and what the place means now the stories of fion mm. they're absolutely packed 
full of Dintianica, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, there's loads, absolutely loads of natural and man-made features named after Fionn. Mm. Um, he really left his mark on the landscape. <laughs> he has. I mean, so, some of those that would be best known to Irish people, you know, from school and so on, would be things like the Giant's Causeway. Now, by this time, he's become a giant himself. Well, he has to be in order to move all those big rocks, you know. So the Giant's Causeway was an attempt to build a bridge over to Scotland to go and beat up some Scottish giant. And kind of linked... Not in my version, where he can't get on the ferry. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> slightly different. Though. It's all right. That's a true version. <laughs> uh, and the other one, which I think is sort of connected, whereby, um, again, in pursuit of this foreign giant, Fionn picks up a big slab of land and throws it after the giant. Where he picked up the land from is actually Loch Ney, mm-hmm. And then where it lands in the middle of the sea forms the Isle of Man. And of course, he's supposed to have stood on Schliemannira, not far from here, mm. and fly a great rock in anger as he saw Diablet go off with, with, with Gronje. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it's odd, isn't he? He's taken on by, by the, these stories, some of which, I mean, like the two giants mm. of Knockmany Hill, I think that's an 18th century mm. retelling. Yeah. Uh, but by this time, he's taken on some of the roles of the Dagdurge in shaping the mm. land. Yeah. And to do this, he has to be a giant. Exactly, exactly. Now, Fionn is so in- integrally about these Din Henneke's things. There's so much about Fionn that we will indeed be doing an entire series, but the stuff is so Probably rich. an extended one. There's so much of it. There is. So we, we decided that we'd go ahead and do this Din Henneke stuff now because we've already got so much, but there will, we promise, there will be a whole series on Fionn. Watch this space. We're really looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. As you just said, the Dinchanicus is an element of nearly all stories. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm just thinking about the Dagdish track, you know, mm-hmm. the ones that he makes with his great club. Or, mm-hmm. Oh, what about the beds of Jim Grani? We never mentioned those. Oh, yes, the dolmens. And there's so many folk tales about those. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's said that, for some of them, that if uh, a girl goes with uh, a man to one of these places, she can deny him nothing. So uh-huh. I remember that if you have to come across one. The point is, they all seem to be stories to illustrate the shaping of the land by... Oh, ancestor creation figures. Yes. And they're not gods, but they really are effectively the first people. Yeah, yeah. And there's the Dinhenicus are such a rich source for us of all of these kinds of stories. So many characters are involved. We've made tremendous use of them yeah, in the past. I think we could justifiably call them the story archaeological trenches, stuffed with linguistic and contextual artefacts. But it was your recent trip to Australia, and particularly to the Northwest, oh, yeah. <laughs> that convinced us to dedicate this episode to Dinhenicus and Dreamtime. So what was it about that experience that particularly resonated with the Irish stories? Well, I always wanted to go up to Arnhem Land and the area around Kakadu and mm. so forth. And uh, because it's so rich in what is generally called Aboriginal rock art, yeah. and I knew that it would be the best place to... Uh, actually try and look at the stories in context. Mm. They're all over Australia, of course, but up there it's very, very focused. Mm. Uh, Mind you, it is also an awful lot of wildlife as well. (laughs) I mean, while I was there, I got blasé about eagles, um, (laughs) encountered some sort of weird magnetic termite, (laughs) um, absolutely unique to the region. I even swam in a waterfall. Yes. And uh, a great met, met a great many crocodiles. Not, I hasten to say, in the waterfall while I was swimming. Yeah, but a little bit close to the boat that you were on with the open back. Oh, yeah, the jumping <laughs> crocodiles. Yes, yeah. yeah, now that was a bit sort of scary. You can imagine yeah. being on a small boat with little sides and no nothing between you, and they're feeding crocodiles with yes. a fishing rod. Exactly. And the crocodiles were jumping up above the level of the handholds, yeah. and I'm getting splashed with yeah. water from... 
rather close crocodiles, so I really know what they look like on yes. the underside. Yes. <laughs> um, they were jumping out as high as their tails, but yeah. that's kind of, well, you know, this is really not the point. Well, no, <laughs> but still. <laughs> I'll put up a picture of one of the crocodiles. Yeah. Um, but what I think I did want to talk about, we, we were very fortunate to have a first Australian guide, mm. a very interesting man. When he was talking to us about the rock art, yeah. I think this is where I began to get almost like a sort of... Well, it was almost like being in, trying to see two ways at once. Yeah. It was like dual vision with the headache that came with it. Really. <laughs> we're watching this beautiful, we're looking at this beautiful art and I'm being told, well, this, this is 20,000 years old mm. or, or this is 3,000 years old or yeah. this is contact art and only 300 years old. Yeah. And we were looking at a particular pic- picture of this dangerous spirit who eats females, apparently. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Uh, or either that or it was Naman Jolg, Jolg, whose sister, he committed incest with his sister Mm. and left a feather on the hillside but you know More maybe I'll get later. to talk about that later <laughs> but um, I knew from my reading and also from the information board in front of me actually yeah. that this has been painted by a, a, an artist in mm. 1964 yeah. and yet I'm being told that this is um, at least 3,000 years old Yeah. so you're getting you know and there seem to be no contradiction in yeah, this yeah and I asked him about this. He said, oh, yes, this was painted by, I forget the man's name. That wasn't old Nim. That was another one. But, uh, you know, and he seemed to see no contradiction. Mm. And I went away to think about this. I think that's when I began to understand. I, I was trying to think about what the dreaming meant yeah. in these places. The idea I always held that the dreaming or dream time was yeah. some sort of not then, not mm. now, not in the future, a sort of out-of-time space yeah. where the land was, is being, and will be created. Yeah. And I was really beginning to... It was doing my head in, to yeah. be honest. You know, how could something that was 3,000 years old be yeah. painted in 1964? Yeah. Then it suddenly struck me that if I went to, oh, I don't know, Waterstones or Easton's or somewhere, mm. and bought a, a, a Shakespeare, bought, bought a copy of The Tempest, yeah. do I turn around and go, no, this play wasn't written in, I forget, what, 1600 and something? Yeah. No, that's not true. I just bought this book. It's brand new. Look, it's brand new paper. Mm. Ink, it's not old. Well, that's absurd. Yeah. It's completely absurd. So why am I finding the idea of this rock art being absurd? You know, this is a reprinting of mm. a story that is 3,000 years old. Yes. And the, the the style and the way it's painted and the imagery within the painting yeah. is tells me that that story or tells the, 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 the people who are reading this picture yeah. that it is 3,000 years old or 20,000 yes. years old or whatever. Yeah. And that the styles never change. But they do not repaint pictures. They don't touch up old pictures. Yes. They repaint them. But that's a reprinting of the book, if you like. The text. So, so, yeah. The text. So suddenly I began to feel that, no, no, we're not talking about dream time as some amorphous mm. time or yeah. non-time. It's a library. And the author- authorised people, the elders, yes. will... Um, authorize a certain story to be put into this library yeah and after that that is the story and it doesn't change um the sad thing is that there there seem to be very few now authorized painters yeah. if any yeah but that's just after that i began to look at it in a completely mm. different way mm. and suddenly realized that in fact it has a lot of relevance to our own stories our own dinjanic yeah and particularly when you look at a corpus like the metrical dinjanicus even though i say it's come from many different sources but what you have is a way of collecting and keeping a particular kind of story again it's encoded in poetry mm-hmm. you know and yes that poetry was composed by an individual at a particular time but the story that it contains 
there's yeah. no way of dating that. And so if I've sort of, you know, it's hard to explain. It is, yeah. But this, and in fact, I did write an article on this. Mm, and um, we'll, we'll, repub- we'll repost, re- 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 it, yeah. repost it. But I think what it, 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 it was almost like um, suddenly having this dual vision. I began mm. to see it in a different way. Yeah. And it all made so much more sense. Mm. I mean, the story's have a firm foundation in the landscape, yes. as the Dinthianicus have a firm foundation in, you know, in Irish stories. Yes, yeah. Um, now, looking at the stories from the Northern Territory, and those are the only ones really I'm going to quote from, yeah. I think, the purposes of the stories, these sort of dream library stories, mm. they seem to be roughly, you can have the one-time creation ancestor events. Yeah. So... The ancestors of the first people, not gods. The, yeah. the, I, if I'm pronouncing this right, the, the Neo-Yungi. Yes. I apologise if I've got that <laughs> wrong. Uh, now, these first people, now, they may interact with animals. Mm-hmm. They may turn into animals themselves, as yeah. they frequently do. Um, they may give rise to other flora and fauna. Mm. And then the other thing is you've got the real creation time stories, which are all about the shaping of the land. They're more like the well-known rainbow serpent mm. ones, or, mm. where the land is changed and, and actually formed by the interaction with these first people. Yes. And the other ones you seem to have are the more general teaching stories, mm. like don't go and swim where there might be crocodiles. Yes, or, you know, if, if you're out on your own in the dark you'd better watch out or you know in case um, nabble wimble winds get you (laughs) or the other woman whose name i can't remember who carries this bag in which she carries off people's livers and kidneys lovely um there's another one which warns people about not going children that they they mustn't go and swim after dark yeah you know sensible stuff exactly yeah so they seem to be the various types of stories mm. and I suspect we're going to find all the same things in our Dinhianicus. Yeah, well it's certainly it's it's the kind of thing that we do find mixed in together. You know, so in the poem that you read at the beginning, uh you've got the sort of the history and why this place has this name, but then you've also got this sign, you know, something to look out for. So it's got more than one function within it the is same in poem. It's a dreaming site. Mm. You know, the uh I now I'm not sure how to pronounce the word because it's spelled D J A N G. Yeah. So it's more likely to be Dang than yeah. Jang, I think. But uh, the Dang, which is the uh, you know, that once something's happened, mm. that becomes a separated or a sacred site mm. and uh, a site of huge significance yeah. where things may happen. Yes. And I think that's exactly what you've got in this yeah. young story. Yeah. What I think is really important is that in both cases, both the uh, Australian and our own Irish stories, yeah. the land is shaped by stories and not by godly intention. Yeah. Um, I find that interesting. Yes, that it's not a question of a figure like Finn or the Dagda sets out to deliberately make this mountain or hollow or river, but that by the actions of these first people... That causes the land to be oh, shaped. Yeah. Or to quote Fionn, it's the music of what happens that matters. Yes, yeah. It's not about sort of. It's not a sculptor working clay to a particular image. It's much more of a Jackson Pollock. Okay, okay. <laughs> so we've got Fionn's story and Jackson Pollock in exactly. one sentence. That's not bad. But because of this, we want to yeah. sort of explore Dinshanicus. Yes. In terms of an Irish dreaming. Yeah, in the light of how you experienced, as an outsider, that Australian culture. Oh, yeah, very much an outsider. Yeah. These are observations. Exactly. But then bringing that back and going, well, what does that tell us about yeah. our own? 
So I think what we're getting at is that Dinthianicus seem to share many of the same ideas as motives. They're not the same thing no, as the other. No, you can't say they're identical. We're not saying that one came from the other Absolutely or anyway connected. not. But they just seem to... So, so well, we'll set out and have a go at this, shall we? Yeah. Now, there are so many to choose from. It's a vast catalogue of stories. We'll mostly be looking at ones from the metrical Dinthianicus here. There is, of course, the Aglipna Shinoruk, which is the colloquy of the ancients or the colloquy They're of the old the stories. Exactly. So saving those for later. We will save those for later. <laughs> OK, well, which one should we start with? then? Uh, well, the one that you read us at the beginning of this episode, the Awfully Thind. Yeah, now that's got Shinnan in. And I think that was why uh, I'm interested in that one. Now, we talked about Shinnan right at the beginning. It was the very first episode we ever did. Series one, episode one. Yeah, and the whole Shinnan story is, in fact, Dinhianicus. Yes, I mean, we took the story from the metrical Dinhianicus poems. And, of course, it tells of how the River Shannon began, what caused the river to be there. Yeah, one of my favourite stories. It is. <laughs> well, the story the, of the, the text that I read at the beginning, or told at the beginning, it's just really a great big battle, isn't it? Of course. I mean, there's so many killed, and it lists all the people who were killed, like, what were they, were four Connells, two Colemans, four Sweeney's, and, oh, you know, all the rest of them. A bunch of Dermods. Yeah, a yeah. bunch of Dermods and a load of other people. Yeah. And uh, you don't get any idea why or what they were fighting about. Well, the thing is with the Fianna and anything to do with Finn and his Fianna, Fianna is basically, it's a war band or a hunting band. Oh, right, it's two factions up against each other. They'll go around bashing each other. Gangs! Yeah, it is, it is slightly <laughs> gangish, all right. I mean, to, to be kind to them, you could call them border guards. Okay. You know, so there's sort of... My lot's better than your football team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like two sort of, you know, bash up between two couple of football teams yeah. on a Saturday night. Yeah, but then we will be saving Finn for later and we'll be talking about all about yeah, what the anyway, I'm about. being a bit unfair to them, I suppose, <laughs> because after all, the whole story is about how poor little Fiona's a baby had to hide. Yeah, yeah. Far. Look, we're, no, yeah, save it for later. Save, save it for later. later. The important thing is, is the after the battle, yeah. this strange woman turns up from the fairy hills. Yeah. You know, um, Shinnan, and it, it, it's definitely Shinnan. She yeah. comes as she's described as uh, coming down from the hills carrying a three-sided stone with a golden chain. Yeah. And she gives it to Fionn, mm. who passes it to Gull. Well, to Guragull. Guragull, yeah. yeah. Okay. And it, it sort of says, then he, he makes this pledge on it, but that the stone is on either the head or the shoulders of Guragull. And I can't help having this image of someone picking up a large stone and almost like crushing somebody else with it. And he makes this <laughs> pledge. He says, I will never kill anyone. I will never fight except with a spear or a sword or a rapier. And meanwhile, he's crushing. And he gets so excited yeah. that he takes the stone and in his battle frenzy, yeah. he hurls it into the into the lake or yeah. into the river yeah. killing three people on the way oh yes just yeah, yeah, yeah. by accident yeah, of, course. of course but of course people don't kill people stones kill them <laughs> it wasn't me it was a stone exactly so it doesn't matter yeah. but it is odd isn't it the way that just happened it is immediately as soon as you know it says it was his gash after that that he wouldn't do this and if he broke the gash then may he die but whoops oh three people were just standing in the way yeah, when I that threw wasn't this me. stone that wasn't yeah. me <laughs> but then you get this weird prophecy yeah and that is really the bit that's curious and the bit that really does connect with 
our reading of the story of Shinnan. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't mm -hmm. it? On Sunday, very specific. Of course. Sunday morning during matins. Yes. Which dates it being a little bit later. Of course, but that's just... In the form it takes Exactly. It's just a way of measuring time. And, you know, it talks about Judgment Day. This woman turns up and lifts the stone with her foot. Yeah, yeah. Or catches the the golden chain with her foot. Yeah. After that, the world will end. Exactly, yeah. Um... But the wonderful thing about that is that the woman is named as Baythina, and that literally means Lady of the Wave. And there's only one Lady of the Wave. Yeah. And, and that's Shinnan. Exactly. Now, if you go back, I mean, just to reprise the Shinnan story, mm. in the Metrical Dinshanicus, Shinnan, she goes to the well that's beneath the sea. Yeah. And as she goes to take the one thing she requires, which is poetic, poetic inspiration, inspiration, as she gains this skill, the water rises up in a great wave mm. and destroys the land. It covers the land. Covers the land until it get it, it stops at the source of the river. Yeah, yeah. So we have this image of this great wave kind of coming over the whole western half of the country. And it just, it was so redolent of a great cataclysmic event like a tidal wave. It which would have been, and this is total speculation, yeah. as we said in episode one, mm. that that was the situation at the end of the Mesolithic, beginning of the Neolithic, exactly. as the last great climate change, yeah. when the land, the shape of the land was changed. Exactly. And it certainly adds weight to our speculation about yeah. the tidal wave. That uh, What this story then, the Orthleic Finn story, tells us is that you know, that beginning of the River Shannon, the beginning of Shinnan, the beginning of the world with that wave. So that but, last wave began the world. Yeah, but this is the wave that will end it. This is the Lady of the Wave who portends the end of the world that we yeah. know. So, and that makes it really very it interesting. It just makes, it, makes the speculation more fun, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it means we have a story of both beginnings and endings. Mm. And that's very like like in Aboriginal terms, mm. in you know, in taking those Dreamtime stories, that Shinnan is a creation ancestor yeah. and her story explains the creation and shaping of the land. Yeah. As well as a one off event from the time mm. of the first people. Yes. It it establishes where the creation took place. Exactly. Now, I was just trying to think of a Dreamtime story which has relevance. Mm. Although funny enough, the one that comes to mind is not one from the Northern Territories, yeah. but a very, very popular story, a well-known story that, in fact, I tell as a children's story, which is about Tillalik, or as I got used to calling him, Tickalik, mm-hmm. the frog, yeah. who, in a bad mood, swallows all the world waters of the world, which mm. at that time were all in one billabong. And how she has to be, oh, it's in, she in my story, has to be made to laugh. Oh, yeah. And in laughing, all the waters of the world, the seas, the rivers, and mm. so forth, are created by mm. the laughing of a frog. Yes. It's a delightful it's story. Lovely. Yeah. But I don't think it's a Northern Territory story. Mm. Well, let's go on to our next example then. And uh, this is another poem from the Metrical Dinhianicus, quite a short and sweet one, really. Um, on the River Barrow, or Berba, as it is. Yeah, we're not going to... We'll, we'll put this one onto the This will be up content. on the blog. You'll be able to read... read the original text. Yeah, and, and my translation. In his oldest translation. Exactly, exactly. But essentially, it's the story of how uh, this river Berba, which means boiling, yeah. um, how is it that it is no longer a boiling river? And it's the story of how Macht, who is a grandson of the Dagda, um, killed off this great serpent who was threatening to eat all the people, all the c- 
cattle, everything on the mm. land. So Mackay killed it and then threw its ashes into the river and that stopped it being a boiling river. Yeah, made it sluggish and sad. Yeah, and slow, yeah. yeah. Now, Mackay, as you said, was one of, but he was one of the Dagda's three grandsons, wasn't he? One of three. Yes. I think his name means, doesn't it, son of the plough? Yes, Mackay, as we found with Dean Kate, who is the... Eager plough. Eager plough. Um, and... Just a little health warning, if you read Edward Gwynne's translation of this poem, he translates Mokkeert as Dienkeert. He actually gets it wrong. But Mokkeert has two brothers. One is Makrenya, which is... Son of the sun. Son of the sun. And the other one is Makrel, which is probably son of the hazel. Um, and there is one tradition that says that they were each wed to Era Fuzla and Bamba. Yeah, yeah, they they are absolutely central. It's almost uh, to me that says you've got the Dagda, who is the great ancestor figure, mm. the, the creation ancestor figure, yeah. who shapes the land. There's no doubt about exactly, that. Exactly, yeah, that's it's very clear. Really important. He he with his he shapes the land just like a rainbow serpent, mm. actually making the, the, the ditches you know, and barrows, ditches yeah. and boundaries, yeah. and where the rivers are and where the mountains mm. are. But his sons seem to be the next stage in shaping the land. Yeah, it's kind of... Agriculture, yeah. the growth on the land, mm. both the sun and the plough, and the yeah. wood, woodlands. Yes. Um, it seems to be that which grows upon the land once it's shaped. Exactly, yeah. It's, I've always next found... Generation. And then they're connected with the three names of Ireland. Exactly. So I do find that interesting. Mm, definitely. Um, so I suppose, if you like, the sun of the plough is the next shape and next stage, as I said, in shaping the land. Yeah. And that's maybe why he has an exploit story... Yes. Associated with this shaping. Yes. Well, I have this image of uh, a plough that kind of cuts through a field and it's sort of the way that it would mash up earthworms, but, you know, something that has a kind of a poisoning effect or a detrimental effect on the land, that he sort of cuts it up by using his plough and then chucks uh, the remains into this river. Now, unfortunately, it means that the river is damaged. Yeah, it just strikes me. Is this a warning against uh, effluent, <laughs> agricultural effluent going into the river? Have we an early ecological story here? <laughs> well, maybe not quite, not quite. But there's definitely this sense that um, he, if you like, perpetrates a lesser evil in order to get rid yeah, of a yeah. greater it's, evil. It, it's not fair, is yeah. it? Because the dragon or the worm or whatever. Serpent, yes. Serpent is causing permanent damage on the land exactly. has to be removed. Yes, yeah. Uh, mind you, we don't have dragons, do we? So where's this dragon come from? Well, it is a serpent. It's, the word used is nather, which is the word for serpent. We're supposed not to have snakes either. No, we never have had snakes in this country. <laughs> no matter what St. Patrick might tell you, there were never any snakes here. But there are actually around any dragons either. No, no, no actual dragons. We, we have to use the continental word drac for a dragon. Um, but you do find these great worms, you know, sort of old uh, fetch. It's a worm. The W Y R M is yes. a worm, is it? Yes, yeah. Uh, and there's plenty of water beasts too, aren't there? There are, and you know, not least the 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 kind of Loch Ness type. So you this know, is a water, the water worm. worm. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's still an unusual story, though. It is, yeah. You don't get those kinds of encounters terribly often. The River Barrow. Isn't it the second longest river in Ireland? I think it is, isn't it? Uh, well, there's a slight contention over that between the Barrow and one of its sister rivers, the Shore. Um, they're two of the, the three sisters, yeah. these three rivers, Nor, Barrow and Shore. Down in sort of southeast Leinster. Yeah, southeast Leinster, um, sort of almost going into Munster, depending on where you put your boundaries. Um, but the Shore just means sister, actually. It's Shore is, is the word. Um, but the Barrow itself, its name is... Berber boiling mm -hmm. and yet it's quite a wide and flat river so 
Arden Hanukkah's poem could almost be called Why is a slow river called like a, like boiling? A, like a riddle. Yeah, exactly. Why is a slow river called boiling? Exactly, yeah. Um, maybe it was that this serpent who's called Methy in the poem, uh, which might be Blight, blight yeah, that, that there's a sense in which when the serpent was around doing its destruction, then the berber was boiling. The boiling of the river was the blight. Yeah, in and a now, way. So he may not have ruined the river, it may mm. have just made it a slow yeah, river again. exactly. It's it's yeah. hard to know because it's not made explicit. No, I wondered, I, I, I was wondering about the barrow. I don't know that area terribly well myself. No, but, not at so all. So I went to look it up. I wondered if it was particularly peaty. Mm. And so I looked up the navigation timeline. Yeah. And certainly there have been navigation issues mm. on the river throughout mm. history. Um, there's a lot of peat bog does run into that goes through peat bog at one yeah. place and there's a lot of been a lot of silting up mm, mm. Um, overall it seems to be wide flat and slow moving yeah. well it's it's also it's tidal very far in line in, inland so that could also contribute to that kind of silting, silting up yeah I mean these days there are locks all the way up the river and in fact the, uh, the site that I looked at which was about whitewater canoeing which gave a lovely description of you know very detailed every part there seems to be only one natural weir on the river, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the so what you've got here is a riddle. Why is this? Why yeah. is a really slow tidal river? Yeah. called the boiling, boiling river. Yeah, and it must be because of the serpents. Exactly. Funny enough, that reminded me just to go back mm. to you know giving a Dreamtime story, yeah. not equivalent, but something res- that resonates yeah. with it. There's this great story about a character called Buller mm. who came from the north from the sea with his wives. As I say, this is still a Northern Territory yes. story. This is an Arnhem Land story. And, or into Kakadu, mm. into the, that area. As he travelled through the stone country, he placed his image in many places. And every one of the places he went became, and this I think is interesting, a dark or secret mm. or sacred space. Mm. is really dangerous yeah he's one of the dangerous spirits mm. that you don't touch whatever yeah. you do you don't interfere with mm. um and the story goes that while he was hunting for the edible pandanus wasp he got stung on the knee by Jokbal the hornet who's known <laughs> as the cheeky dangerous one uh, after that he could only crawl and in his pain he returned under the ground mm. And where he remains today, sensitive to the disruption of the landscape. Yeah. And any, the area where he's gone underground is known as the sickness country. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that was around Jabiru, where the story is centred, uh, where his jang or dang, his dreaming is, yeah. He um, this is the area which, throughout the 90s, was mined for uranium, yeah. much to the... Um, disapproval yeah. and protest mm. of the traditional owners of the land yeah. who were uh, of one and mm. the Iranian mining has been stopped but I find it interesting that it, it was always known as the sickness country yeah. and was a space that should not be touched exactly uh, yeah. of course being a dreamtime story mm. it could be a new story yes yeah, so it, it could be sort of retrospective rather than I don't think I didn't yeah. get I have no proof but I don't mm. think it is mm. found it very interesting yeah well, how about looking at our third Dinshanika's text? Oh, now this is a really interesting one. This one concerns Nauth, uh, which is part of the Boyne Valley complex um, in relation to Newgrange or Brindaboyne, yeah, yeah. and uh, Douth is the other main one there. Um, it's now, the largest one, isn't it? Uh, Nauth, the main mound at Nauth is the place that the main mound has been built 
is actually more or less over a load of smaller tumuli. Mm -hmm. So there's actually loads and loads and loads of little passage graves all yeah, around there. There's still 17 around the outside, aren't there? I don't know the exact numbers, yeah. but there there are, it's a really quite a fascinating complex. I mean, it, there's been a lot of work done on it, a lot of excavation and, and mapping and so on over the last 40 years or so, a lot of that under the directorship of Professor George Hogan. Um, and one of the things that maybe people mightn't realise about it... Why it's so exciting, Why really. it's so exciting. It has over a quarter of all the megalithic art in the entirety of Europe, just on this one site. It's absolutely mind-boggling. And a lot of its 127 curbstones yeah. around it are... like. When we say they're decorated, highly decorated, yeah, it's sort of every single part of the stone has been carved in some shape or another. Yeah, there's two main passages, aren't there? Oh yes, that's the other thing that that distinguishes it, if you like, from some of the other large passage graves that we might be familiar with, like Newgrange, mm -hmm. that now it actually has one coming in from either side. Um, they seem to lie in a sort of west-east direction yeah the the these highly decorated stones absolutely fascinating mm. i mean there's so much work people are looking at them and trying to interpret them in of all, course all sorts of ways yeah uh both speculative and um less speculative <laughs> but they're, 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 what they do seem to show is that the megalithic builders seem to have the ability to make quite intricate astronomical calculations and they seem to be connected both the lunar and solar year mm. there's so many theories at the moment there is there's, there's an awful lot of theories very difficult to prove any yeah, of them there was an idea that they seem to reflect the autumn and spring equinoxes but evidence seems to show that the alignments are what early nineteenth of March, an equivalent mm, time in, in October. October. Yeah, but it's just fascinating. It is, and one of the wonderful discoveries that they made, um, I think, in the decorations within the main tumulus itself, is um, a piece that seems to be a map of the surface of the moon. And I remember a few years ago that there, there were headlines in the Irish Times, you know, yeah, saying yeah. that formerly the oldest map of the surface of the moon known was done by Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, over 2,000, maybe 3,000 yeah. years earlier than that. Um, and it's an amazing It's stuff, extraordinary. Yeah. It is absolutely wonderful. Well, unfortunately, we can't really go into a detailed description here. Yeah. But... It is relevant to the text, however. Oh, of course it is, yeah. And so we'll put up links to the site and yeah. other other interesting stuff. Exactly. Uh, and make what you like of it for yourselves. Exactly. It's just worth looking into. Yeah, yeah, that's the archaeological side of things. Okay, well, let's have, have a look at the poem just a quick It, it yeah. begins, as far as I can see, as Boa, which means cow, daughter of red-haired Ruadri, who means <laughs> red king, isn't yeah. it? Wife of Lu, son of Cian of the Ruddy Spears, it is there that her body was buried, Boas Hill in the midst of Brega, the place in which the good woman was laid in that precinct over there. Yes, <laughs> quite quite a direct. You know, you can you can imagine the tour guide of the time standing in front it feels of. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. claiming exactly. right here. Yeah, yeah, this is it. Now, yeah. this is what happened. Yeah, mind you, there's an awful lot of cows around the Bruna Boy, aren't there? And I don't mean the ones in the fields. Well, yes, well, both types. In fact, I mean it's it's known as a great grazing land. But as we've seen before, I meant in the stories. Of course, as there seem to be a lot of cows turn up in the stories. Yeah, I mean definitely. We we did look before in um i think both in series one and maybe again in series two at uh, the stories around bowen 
yeah. of course, for Who's whom we have Brew very in the much morning. connected with the Brew Boy, obviously. Yeah, it's it's her brew. Yes, um, and you know, she of course is is a cow. Um, she's the, <laughs> the white cows cow there, well. there all these girls exactly. Yeah, but her name means white cow, just as Boa means cow. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that that does seem to be a recurring theme in this complex. And her story is all about the dagger and uh, how she and she's married to Elkmar at the time. Elkvar, yeah. Elkvar, sorry. Yeah. Elkvar at the time and uh, how the dagger sort of decides. Well, yeah, the dagger and uh, Bowen herself, they they do definitely fancy each other. But uh, Bowen won't go off with Dagda because she's scared of Elkvar's power. So His name means spite, doesn't it? Yeah, spite or... Envy. Or, yeah, all those kind of nasty mm. negative things. So basically the dagger sends him off on, on a fool's errand, um, which will take him a day. Um, but they make him think that only a day's gone past, whereas in fact a full nine months will have gone past. Mm-hmm. So that um, not only can the Dagda and Bowen have their way with one another, but any resulting uh, offspring have a chance to be born. And there is a resulting offspring. Oh yes, that's the birth of Oingus Og, the young son. Uh, young is the son that was born uh, between, uh, day and night. Board between day and night. Yeah. Uh, mind you, of course, the Dagda gets the, the, the broom self. By a similar trick, doesn't he? Well, it's again, this comes into the beginning of the story of the wooing of Aideen, which mm-hmm. we've referred to several times. And, and will again. We will again. I mean, but it is a huge saga. There's an awful lot involved. Another um, great saga to come. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, that when, you know, Oingus is being brought up by Mither as a foster son, but he thinks that he's Mither's natural son. He wants to know then where he's come from. And Mither sort of tells him, Dagda is your father. So Oingus goes to the Dagda and says, well, if you're my father, where's my inheritance, essentially? Um, Dagda says, well, I have this place in mind for you, but there's someone there at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you can have this house, but... It happens to have an owner. Exactly. We won't worry about that. Yeah, so that's Elkvar in the brew. And so he tells Oingus to go to the brew on a Samhain um, and says that he should threaten violence against Elkvar unless he can have the kingship of the brew for a day and a night. Mm-hmm. He makes it very clear that it wouldn't be right if Oingus actually perpetrated violence. Okay, just threatens it. Exactly, yeah. So all this is... verbal trickery we've talked about exactly. with the Dagda and Oingus, they yeah. do all the time. So Oingus gets the seat for a day and a night. Um, but of course, when Elkvar comes to claim it back from him, Oingus uses this wonderful phrase of, you know, well, actually, I'm king here for all time because what is time but made up of days and nights? So one day and night? It's, um, it's forever and a day, really. Exactly, yeah. We've got Boa and Boan. Both of them mean which mean cow, or mm-hmm. white cow. Do you think they could be the same? Same person? Well, not on a kind of a first reading. And there's always a danger, I think, in trying to conflate Oversimplify. these. Oversimplify. Just a thought. Well, the trouble is, though, that if you go that way, then you have Bowen, who in the poems and the stories were told, she's also Eslu. And Eslu is and, and she, it's is another Luz, name for her. Yeah, so Lou's mother. Yes. So and in this we have Boa, who's Lou's wife. wife. So uh, think if they're the same, bit. his wife and his mother is the same, which is probably a little bit inconvenient. A little bit, yeah, <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah. Thinking about Eslu, you know, I'm not finished on this one yet because <laughs> uh, if you heard the podcast episode on our speculative proto story on Moidura, yes. and if you didn't, go and go, go and listen. Quite fun that yeah. one. You'll know that the cow, the Glasgowan, was really central to that story. Absolutely. And here again, as if with as with the Bowen, you know, the Bowen story rather, you've got the Dagda is taking the fertile life giving river cow 
from someone called Spite. Yes. And Bresh, which was to do with, I mean, Bresh was the king of uproar and din and chaos. Chaos. It's, and here we've got Spite and Envy. Mm. Because otherwise yeah. you really have to feel sorry for Alcar. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He, he seems to be there in order to be spited or to be cuckolded, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Unless he is because he means Brash mm. and Spite rather. Mm. Just in the same way that um, Bresh was set up. Yeah, yeah. He feels that Elkvar's whole position here mm. is one somebody you do things to. Yeah. I don't know. It just feels like it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Glasgowan who we're talking about, that is identified with Ethelu. So, you know, she, she's there at the root of all of us. Yes, this cow, this life-giving mm. cow, often associated with water. Yes. Coming yeah. forth out of water. Mm. An incredibly important image. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, let's throw something else into the mix. I mean, we've talked about whether Boer, Bowen, Ethelu, they seem to have the same nature. Mm. So could the whole complex be really connected with Boer or Boan, the white mm. cow, the cow in general. I mean, so how important were cows? The dates for the act, the building of the large tumuli at, at Nouth and was the other around two thousand five hundred to two thousand BCE. Yeah, so um, we are talking about, if you like, the the flowering of this Neolithic um, and this was early culture. farming culture. Exactly. I would imagine that cattle, suddenly when you're settling, you're, you're mm. moving into a settled environment in which is the beginning of when cattle become central to the economy. Exactly. And they stay like that for a very long time, don't it, they? It really does. I mean... To this day, in a way. Well, right up to, as, as we saw before, <laughs> when we looked at cows and currency, when talking mm. about Ethlu, you know, cows are still being used as a... a, a currency standard in Put Ireland in pocket. Yeah. up to the 14th century the you know in your pocket exactly so you know we're talking about several thousand years yeah. where it really was the hinge of the economy and yeah. so yeah there there is a sense to which it's at the core of farming life i mean it, yeah the the, the, the brinneboyne complex mm. is is you're right it's at the flower it's not at the beginning no though, because i mean the, all the fascinating stuff that's coming out of the complex up in orkney yes that deserved to be looked at and mm. i mean that's much earlier the mm. that i think 3200 bc yeah uh, and i think it finished around uh, 2300 bc yeah, so BCE. it was finishing off around the time um, that these places were being built. Yeah, and it sort of came from, I know there is evidence, quite mm. a lot came from this complex up there mm-hmm. and moved southwards. Yes. And yeah. flowered as it came southwards. Yeah. So, uh, and after all, the Brunaboyne complex is, if you like, the final flowering of the uh, shall we of say, that culture, of culture yeah. in in Ireland. Yeah, isn't it? and as we've pointed out before, you know the the uh, sites here in the west of the country, such as Carrickeen, they are at least a thousand years older, yeah. and what they don't have to the same extent as somewhere like Nouth, is the, mega, decoration. Is the decoration. Oh, Nouth seems to be the cumulation the of it, the peak, yeah, doesn't it? absolutely. Yes, it's quite true. The Orkney complexes would be fairly concurrent with the early West yes. Ireland ones. Yeah. And there's not much uh, carving, as far as I know. Mm. Uh, though they have discovered painting. Which is very in intriguing. Painted walls. Yeah, and that makes you wonder then whether some of the other sites over here might have uh, been painted knows? ones. Yeah, it's all terribly exciting. It's only a few lines, but that encapsulates, if you like, the Dinhenicus of the site insofar as that's why it's called what it is. Nock Boa. Boas Hill, mm. Nogfa, Nouth. Look, we've just got all that sorted out mm-hmm. when suddenly, da da da, the Dinhenicus veers off in a completely different direction altogether. Yes. Uh, only this time it turns into some sort of soap story. I know, yes. <laughs> yes. It's all about Elkvar's daughter and her very complicated love life. Oh, yeah. I'm going to leave you to tell that one. <laughs> I just can't cope. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, uh, the the Dynamicus poem, you know, having just done that nice sort of easy, straightforward summary introduction. And that's how it was in that precinct over there. Exactly. But it wasn't like that at all. Yeah. It says that, it, you know, Nutva has many names and that this is maybe one of the better stories about it. So it talks about Engluck who is Elkfer's daughter. Mm-hmm. Now, as we were just discussing in terms of the story of the Brunebornia, um, Elkfer was Bowen's husband, mm-hmm. who was sent away for those nine months. Or a day. Yes, exactly, depending on how you look at it. And so he has a daughter called Engluck. Now, it doesn't say that she's also Bowen's daughter. You know, mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's always best in these kind of uh, family trees not to assume that she is. <laughs> Look, you can't assume anything about the family trees in this story because exactly. we all know that's not what it's about. Yes. So what it tells us then is that uh, Engluck is loved by Mither, mm-hmm. who we've also met before. And will again. Yes. But that... Uh, Engluck doesn't seem to love Mither, she loves Oingus, mm-hmm. but that Oingus doesn't really love her. <sighs> so, yeah, this is this is the soap opera bit, you know. <laughs> now, having just dis- explained that Mither loves Engluck, Engluck loves Oingus, Oingus doesn't love Engluck, and all that kind of stuff. Engluck, who, by the way, her name may mean something oh, like... Got a great name, yeah. Yeah, it could be like a stone trackway or something to do with the slab stones or water wrestling which I quite like. How do you get water wrestling? <laughs> That's from N as a word for water. Oh yeah, me. I, my name is water wrestling. Yeah. I think Anyone good. want to join me? <laughs> <laughs> well, given her role in this story, yeah. you know. Um, but Mither, as he is wont to do, shows up and abducts her. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's another time. He just turns out whoop. Yeah, off he goes with Your the woman that he yeah. fancies, you know, which is of course what he does throughout the story of Mither and Aideen as well. Mm, that's He's... the whole purpose of that story. Exactly, exactly. So there he is once again. He's abducted some poor young girl. Um now it says that Oingus shows up to the place where Angluck had been. Um and basically sort of looks for her, can't find her, and then he I thought he didn't love her. Exactly, that's the thing. It now says he goes off to look for his lover. So yeah. you know what is this? Does he not care about her till she's gone? Uh, well, that sounds familiar. I told you yeah. it sounded like a soap. Exactly. What I love though is the description. You know, it was it's Sauron when he turns up. Exactly. It? Yes. And it's described as the Sauron, the time of fires and journeys. Yes. And that really does describe Sauron, doesn't it? it? Yeah. I mean, this is one where um, Gwyn's translation. He said, you know, that that Oingus arrived there on a blazing, hurrying Sauron, and I can't really make sense of that as a line. But when I looked at it, it seemed to be more fitting to say Samhain of Fires and Journeys. Um, and, of course, it says that he's showed up because he's uh, there to play a game against some of the other Fian bands. Uh, so, so he just wanted her to watch and watch him and admire him? Yeah. Admire him, did he? Well, he's something going, like that. Oh, yeah. my greatest fan isn't here. What's yeah, wrong? Yeah, but, yeah, that description of Samhain, I think, is a lovely one. You know, that, that again, the time for fires, time for journey, time for games. Well, it, which it was. Yeah, and which it still, still is. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Bonfires and trick-or-treat. Bonfires, yeah. games yeah. and uh, hunting in the dark. So, Angus turns up, mm-hmm. he looks around for her, she's not there, mm-hmm. um, he gets worried. Yes. He goes to look for her. Exactly, so he, he gets his uh, posse together and um, they go off to find her. Now, it's it's not totally clear how he conducts this search, but what the poet does tell us, and you know lays a great importance on this, is that the provisions that they brought with them uh, were all red nuts of the forest like i would presume hazelnuts um 
Although it's it's a bit funny as a modern Irish speaker to be reading it because the the word used for provisions is loan. And anyone <laughs> who's been to, you know, a school in Ireland yeah, know about lunchtime. Lunch. It's, it's, it takes his lunch with him. Yeah, exactly. This is the lunch that they had with them. Um, yes, exactly. So <laughs> that kind of makes it a bit odd. But it is. They're, they're provisions. They're eating a load of nuts. But that um, Oingus seems so distraught by the disappearance of Anglic um, that he just throws his on the ground rather than eating them. But it says how he walks around the Great Hill and he's making a lament and um, throwing these nuts on the ground. Mm. And that's how we have Knogubba, um, which is a kind of synthetic etymology, meaning a nut lament. A nut lament. Yeah. And Now that actually makes the hairs rise on my arms because mm. I've just remembered something. You remember when we were talking about Ethlu mm-hmm. and uh, her name was connected with the white cow and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and the glass gown, but it was also connected. She was the kernel, yes. the nuts. Yeah, yeah. So here we have the the the, the cow name, the the glass cow and the mm-hmm. f blue, mm-hmm. or connected again with that same hill, mm. connected with the nut lament. Yes. This confusion between f Lou's mother, Lou's mm. wife, Bowen. Mm. What they really all seem to represent is the glass gown, mm. and now it's. The Dagda's son. Yes. Just as the Dagda has, mm. who has the power of drawing out the power, the flowing of the white cow. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly it, it has this image, like when, when I was reading it, you know, that it's very much, very performative. The lament that, that is um, cited in the poem is very much the kind of the, the performative formal keening you know rather mm. than this kind of just just sobbing or wailing no, it's, it is it's, it's the performal lament yeah yeah and and with this scattering of nuts and it, it felt almost like a sort of funerary rite or sowing right exactly yeah That's and sowing of course you know it is it's death of the year you know in the winter the land goes to sleep calling and... someone out of the hill mm. you know there's not a chance it could have an influence a Greek influence. We see when we were looking at the children of Turin, mm. you could see direct influence from Greek myth. Yes, yeah. Um, it does remind you a bit of Persephone, and the nuts would uh, be a much more suitable thing than pomegranate. <laughs> it would, it would. But I don't see that there has to be, you know, a direct this one influence the other one. I mean, it's it's quite a strong and, and I suppose, easily apprehended metaphor this idea that the 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 liveliness the growth of the earth goes to sleep or has gone away and is lamented and is lamented then and and eventually will get called back you know and if we and it is very much uh, a a type of ritual that would fit Samhain yes and everything we know is Samhain very well yeah now I it's worth pointing out that the main hill at Nowth it doesn't seem to have if you like a direct you know, solar or lunar connection um, with the time of Samhain. But it is, as as we said earlier, it's one of many hills in that precinct. Mm-hmm. And so it might not necessarily be talking about the main um, barrow at, at Nowth, you know. The... It also is very clear that there are a variety of astronomical... Yes, exactly. Um, uh, you know, it's a place where there seem to be a great variety of astronomical functions, shall exactly. we say. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is all speculative. Mm. I'd actually call it tentative. Yes. <laughs> but the stories do seem to show evidence of how they were being remembered and reenacted yeah. at the time of, shall we say, of the flowering of the complex. Yes, You yeah. can say that... The, and actually, there 
I, I was thinking about going back to what we're talking about today, mm. Jen Shanika, Dan Shanikas and dreaming. Mm. They are actually resonant with the dreaming sites uh, that we were talking about in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and the ritual stories that, in fact, are still played out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you tell a story to remember the story you reenact it. This, is, mm. this isn't rocket science. This is nothing new. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I can see that... I said it makes pictures in your head. So that's it. Two versions of the meaning of the name Nokva. Well, this is Dinyanikas that we have here. You can't quite expect them just to leave it at two versions. There is now another story. Of A third version. Of course there is. Okay. <laughs> so, is this one full of cows? <laughs> um, not exactly, but it is, it's a very interesting one. Kind of uncomfortable from some points of view. So, um, maybe I'll just give a brief synopsis of that. Yeah, okay. Right, so this third uh, tale within the one poem is all connected with Brassel Bodhivad. Mm -hmm. Now, he's kind of known as a mythological king. Um, His name, Brassel, it basically has the same etymology as Bresh, um, as in the kind of uproar, the din, chaos. The king who was removed Mm. by the Tuatha in the... Yeah. It drew my tour. Yes, yeah. Um, But the Bodhivad bit, Bodhivad kind of means cow destruction or cattle destruction and uh, it's quite a common there tale. There's no cow destroyer! Yeah, pretty much. Um, but the, there's a number of places where he's named and they, they talk about this cow plague that's happened during his time, during his reign or his time. All over Ireland. All over Ireland, exactly. Yeah. Now, this is something that, you know, there was probably quite regular, you know, mm. foot and mouth and what have you. Um, but uh, he's particularly associated with that and that all of the cattle of Ireland die off. Now, in this poem, it says that all the cattle of Ireland died except for one bull and seven heifers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, in other stories, it's one bull and one one heifer. But this one says one bull and seven heifers and that the bull got stronger for every hospitler during his lifetime. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that it may be connecting it up with the story of Buchad. Yeah. Who we spoke of yeah, before. We did, didn't we? Um that you've got Buchad and his wife Udras, who are both strong hospitlers, but that through one means or another, the stories don't necessarily agree, depending on whether it's a story of Buchad or a story of Udras. If yeah. it's a story of Buchad, it's his in laws come and eat all of his eat him out of house and home until yeah, all he's cows, yeah. yeah, until all he's got is one uh, bull and, and seven cows. If it's Udras telling the story, then it has to do with the cattle being stolen away. Yeah. And that's where she has her encounter with the Morrigan, who ends up turning yes, her into a stream. Yeah. So I think that that sort of comment about being left only with this bull and seven cows, the bull getting stronger, and then saying that it's to do with the hospitlers, I think that that's a reference out to Bukhad and Udras. It's a reference. There's <laughs> another story, which is connected yeah. with hospitalers, but I'm not going to go into that exactly. now. Exactly. But the poet doesn't have to. Because you know the story. So, you know, this this is the thing about the poems. They do kind of rely on knowledge of, of the stories as a whole, mm-hmm. you know. But it's just, it's picking out this point here. It introduces that the idea that Nukba, that the Hill of Mouth, was built by oh, Bressel yeah. So the harsh hill was built by him in the likeness of Nimrod's tower, so that he might from it go up to heaven. And that is the reason it was attempted. It was the men of Ireland who made it the whole hill, built in one day. Yeah. So now, in Ireland, we've got the Tower of Babel as well. Exactly. But yeah. we now know it was built by the men of Ireland, and yeah. what's more, they did it in one day. Exactly. Now, th- this is, again, the idea of this, you know, massive 
task that has to be undertaken in one day. It doesn't, the poem doesn't necessarily say it has to be done in one day, but that's what they were going to do. Yeah, you know, they were going to do it in one there's day. There's so many connections here. Yeah. It feels like there's an old story that is well known, or a set of stories yeah. that are known. Yeah. And, but somehow they've got slightly garbled, slightly mixed, mm. and have almost like uh, trampled under a plethora of influences and shared ideas. Yeah. I don't, I mean, obviously the one that has to be done in one day, or mm. they decided to do it one day. It does recall the story we mentioned earlier about yes. uh, the Brunner boy. Yeah, um, exactly. But not only that, but that there are other tasks that the Dagda and the Tolengus over uh, undertake, I was going to say overtake, undertake, which again have to be completed like overnight, mm-hmm. you know, or in mm-hmm. one day, you know, and, and that's part of when Oengus goes to get Aideen. He's set these tasks that all he has to, to complete. Be one day. It, yeah. It's a regular motive. It if is. something's worth doing, yes. then they do it in one day or one night. Yeah. A bit like that old sort of Scottish idea about uh, if you can have a roof on your house overnight yeah. and have the smoke coming out of the chimney, yeah. then you can keep the house. Yeah, yeah. Although that's not as complicated as it sounds because yeah. they used to carry the roof of wood around with them because yeah. there wasn't enough wood. Yeah. So that's another story. But yeah, yeah they, there are these connections. Yeah. But the other thing that struck me, of course, is you've got this biblical connection yeah. of the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and it's also, as we've seen in stories, again, I refer to the children of Turin, it's mm. like, well, if you've got Hercules, so have we. Yeah. So yeah. you've got a Tower of Babel, yeah. so have we. Yeah, we have our own Tower of Babel. Here. And it's yeah. not, not unusual. Yeah. But so... But there's more to the story, isn't it? There is. And this is the really interesting and really important bit. That uh, Barcel has a sister um, who, in this story, is unnamed. Yeah, yeah. Although... Again, if we if we do a little bit of speculation and, and drawing out of the lines, we might find our name. Yeah, well, at, right at the beginning, it says, you know, this is the hill of Bua that Bua was a daughter of Ruadri. Yeah, and in again other sources, Brasilbo David is said to be a son of Ruadri, and there there isn't anything else in this part of the story that directly connects it to being Nukva, to directly being Nuk Bua. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it again, it's a bit of a stretch, and we're always forewarning the dangers of trying to create family trees. But uh, there is a sister here, um, and we can imagine that she may be Bua or something, someone like Bua, let's say. Mm-hmm. So his sister, she seems to take it upon herself uh, to ensure that this task does get done in the course of a day, and she takes herself away to do some firm magic mm. and she succeeds in stopping the sun over their heads she stops yeah. it in its course um and now this is very uh, evocative like we were talking about Samhain earlier but the the irish word for a solstice is green stod yeah. which just means stopping the sun so therefore semantically speaking mm. any ceremony mm. at a solstice yes would stop the sun yeah it would yeah. be a sunstop ceremony. Exactly, yeah. It's just a thought. It is odd. Yes. Um, mind you, I still think we've got to point out that other stories are being referenced. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you've got uh, the Dagda alters time. Mm. Uh, and to allow, complete these great tasks. Yeah, yeah, to allow that great task mm. of the conception and birth of Oingus. Yeah. Um, and again, I have to cite biblical of references, course, yeah. which are relevant to the mm. period these stories were written down. Yeah. And, of course, you've got that story when Joshua, God, stops the sun and moon in the sky mm. so that Joshua can complete a battle and defeat his enemies yeah. when he's fighting the Moabites, mm. I think, who were in Jordan. Right. <laughs> they predate the Nabataeans, but that's irrelevant. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> 
But yeah, you can see so many connections to other stories and other influences, including the biblical, which is definitely there. I mean, otherwise mm. we wouldn't have a Nimrod's Tower. But what's really important in this, and what makes it distinct from those stories, is that it's Brassel's sister who's mm-hmm. performing this magic. It definitely comes from her. You know, there's there's no petitioning an outside power. It's it's she herself. Yeah, does I think it. you make a good point there. Mm. And yeah, I'll refer back to. I think it's also significant that now is full, is jam packed with mm. these seemingly complex, this wealth of uh, possible possible astronomical. Um, measurements yeah. record keeping yeah though we don't really understand what it is no no and and possibly never will but that it does seem to be something very particularly associated with now mm. there is a lot more to this story oh yes this becomes maybe a little bit distressing let's let's give a bit of a health warning to our listeners <laughs> you before we go ahead on yeah, this well anyway he comes across his sister while she's performing her magic yeah and he's overcome with some cause of stupor it says mm. and he rapes her stopping the magic dead yeah um, what do you make of this? Well, there is some interesting linguistic stuff going on here for a start, um, as a translator. So you've got this word rape there. It says, you know, he, he went to her, he went to have sex with her, and it says very specifically, although it was a crime, which is cull, mm-hmm. um, and again, that can be very much, a, if you like, a natural crime rather than a, a legal crime. Yeah, yeah. So, um, a wrongness. A wrongness, yes. And then it also talks about, you know, terms that are most usually associated with rape, but also with incest. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. that that was very clearly what it was. So it's very clearly that this intended to be... Yeah. In, uh, you know, I mean, it says he was overcome with the stupor, but... Yeah. Well, again, it's kind of interesting because there, there's a, a line about how Brazil's own people, that how they saw this act. Now, Gwyn has said that his people uh, considered it a marvel, um, but the word used is decra, and uh, that has a more fundamental meaning of, you know, a hardship or difficulty, almost an impairment. Mm-hmm. You know, so they they saw it as this this frenzy, this loss of self and loss of judgment that it was mm-hmm. an affliction that he had that meant that he he uh, raped his own sister mm-hmm. another linguistic element of that is that when she's taking herself off to perform this magic and um, that she goes to a place which is called fertochile mm-hmm. uh, the fert part um that mm. means it's it's often translated as a grave but it has this particular relevance to the grave mounds, okay. uh, which, of course, we've got loads of at Nice. You know, they're yeah, just yeah. They're to a penny. And uh, the Huila part, uh, it could be a mound of the hollow or a mound of the fly, even. Um, there's a lot of ways to understand it. Isn't there a connecting with the word for concubine? Now, this is what I wanted to come right. back to, because after we have this, we say... You know, the sister's gone to Fertochwila, um, Bressel comes across her there, uh, is attacked by this frenzy or stupor, um, rapes her even though it's incest, uh, his people think of it as an affliction, and it comes back to that's why it's called Fertochwila. Mm-hmm. But when you hear that for the second time, then you're associating the Chwil bit more with the cull, the sin, the violation, yeah, yeah. the rape. Um, and what it... Brought to mind for me is this quite interesting term, uh, ben chule, mm. uh, which I've come across in the legal texts. And it's a term that seems to refer to uh, a concubine mm. um, or possibly prostitute. You know, it's it's not always clear in these things. 
Um, but we also have a character in the cast negativity. Yeah, that's where I remember it yeah. from. Yeah, and she's Um In the second muster, the women... They say are... what they're going to do exactly. in the battle. Yeah. yeah. So the Bentuasid, who are the wise women, uh, the yeah. women of power, and they're named as Dianan and Beichwila. Yeah, she was one of the sorceresses. Yeah, so... yeah. So we've got this named character who is, you know, her name is very close to this term for a concubine or... Yeah, she's also a wise woman. Exactly. And here we have a female character whose magic is influenced by sexual activity, also not condoned Mm -hmm. sexual activity. Taboo sexual activity. Exactly, But it's connected with her magic. Exactly, yeah. So in this story, Mm. what you're saying to me is the sun would have remained static in the sky, but it's moved on again by the sexual act. Yeah. You know, if we're going to pick up what you were saying about the funerary rites, mm. and maybe some of these stories reflect the type of activities. Mm. Are you suggesting there were sacred prostitutes? It's a possibility. It happens in other cultures. I don't think we can ever say for certain. <laughs> no, no, that would be far <laughs> exactly. too... Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, not least because, you know, the role of women in history is often cloaked in quite a lot of innuendo and, uh, you know, isn't made terribly clear. I mean, personally, I do feel there are other parts within Irish mythology that suggest, for example, Cúchalán's relationship with Aifa. Oh, yes, and, in, and actually Ema's relationship with her father yes which yeah. i really don't want to get into now exactly but yeah. uh, there is hidden incest quite frequently oh incest is definitely but in terms of more if you like a, the, the sacred prostitute or concubine yeah. then you do have like ifa um who seems her role seems to be to initiate kukulan sexually oh yeah as yeah, part yeah. of his training um you know I, I think there may be something in there but we mustn't judge things by victorian values god no <laughs> Please, no. In fact, there was a freedom. Women seemed to have all the control over their own bodies. Mm. But that didn't mean to say that they could just hand away important rights exactly. of kinship. Yes, exactly. In terms of like the hospitality offered by Indek's daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, that it seems, it seems That's to exactly me... That's exactly what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, that, that part of you know the hospitality setup is that the daughter of the house can offer sexual favours and that it's hers to offer. That's no loss. Yeah. No loss of status, exactly. no loss of anything. Yeah, yeah. But you that doesn't mean automatically that she's going to hand over the family silver. No, nor does it mean that women had a, you know an equal place in old Irish society. No, that, it that's doesn't. not true by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of possibilities here to talk about, but yeah. it's all completely speculative. However, it's it's also worth remembering that it is very specific in this story that it's incest. As Levi Strauss pointed out, that is a universal taboo. It's interesting, you know, because that brings me back to a Dreamtime story, which has mm. direct relevance to this. Mm. There was one of the first people whose mm-hmm. name was, if I'm pronouncing it right, Namanjog is as mm-hmm. near as I can get to it. And he and his sister broke the incest laws. Mm. And now there was a rock ledge just above the, you love this name, the Unbangbang Shelter. <laughs> I mean, it, that is the name yeah. of the place. And there she, she took a feather from her brother's headdress and she mm. dropped it. And the rock where this happened is still there yeah. as a memory of the kinship laws that were broken in that spot. Yeah. And, uh, this becomes a dangerous place, a dangerous mm. dreaming. And as I said, the word D-J-A-N-G, and I mm. don't know, to be honest, whether it's pronounced Dang or Jang. But certainly after this act, she he became the great Ginga, the great saltwater crocodile. Yeah. And believe me, they are horrible. <laughs> well, they're certainly <laughs> they're impressive. wonderful. Impressive. Yeah. And uh, she became the rainbow serpent, yeah. of whom there are many names in many places. Mm. I mean, I can't go into it here, but the, as far as I can see, the uh, kinship laws are very strange. Yeah. Of 
very not strange, very very sensible, really. Yeah. But uh, when children are born, they are put into a skin group, a mm. kinship group, which may relate to one of several groups. And it's uh, they can't marry or even sit next to someone of the same skin group. Mm. But it isn't just parents and children or brothers and sisters. There are matching skinship groups or non-matching ones. Yeah. Um, more than that, I can't go into. I could probably find a little more out about it, and I will put the picture of this very place with the rock. Yes, on uh, on the uh, blog. Yeah, but it's an interesting story because it relates almost exactly to yeah. the story we're looking at. Mm. What do we make of all this? We've looked at three Dinchianicus and mm. uh, a few uh, Dreamtime or um, Creation Time stories. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to say, though, is that anything I've talked about in terms of the first Australians or Dreamtime stories, I'm an outsider. Mm. I'm totally an outsider. I'm just an observer. Yeah. And anything I say is based on an observer's observations, yes. outsider's <laughs> observations. Yeah. But I have, did find it interesting to touch that world because... Mm. By looking at this, what is to me a foreign tradition, mm. really made me look at our own native tradition. Yes. Well, a, another element to that, of course, as well as finding all these parallels and so on, um, that the first Australians tradition, it's remained as an oral tradition an awful lot longer than the Irish ones have. Now, yeah, it's still effectively an oral tradition in many ways. The Australian, although, yes. Yeah. I mean, there are people who are writing down uh, received information yeah, yeah. from people who still tell the stories orally. Yeah, and although, if you like, we like to think that in Ireland we have this strong oral tradition, it's actually been a literary tradition for a very long time now. You know, that what we are looking at is literature that has been created, you know, over for over a thousand years in this country. Yeah, in many ways, I'd almost say that I feel now the oral tradition has been broken and I'm not sure it can be remade. No. Or that even you want to remake it. Exactly. And in working with storytellers now, mm. I've met, and we've both met storytellers, mm. who have said, I can't pass this on. Yes. Uh, how can you when the... Uh, the sons or daughters or grandchildren mm. are so we're so imbued with the rich culture of a, a whole world, rich exactly. global culture. Yeah. It's almost impossible to reverse that. We're into something new now. Yeah, I would say though that uh, here in Ireland, uh, there is an oral tradition of a different sort. There's a lot of extremely good conversationalists. Yeah, unfortunately, it is true that a lot of Irish people have that awful gift of the gap. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I really wasn't going to say that. Okay, let's, let's let's call it a pub philosophy then. All right, yeah, yeah. But, no, but people like to share stories. Absolutely, that is really true. Yes, and and do an awful lot of talking, and you know, a lot of that talking is of a very high quality. You know, um, but there is a love of words and the crafting of words as well. We do have a wonderful literary tradition. It's too easy to conflate or confuse a literary with an oral tradition and I think it's worth remembering that there is a difference. I suppose if we sum up what this has all been about is that the original text is the landscape itself. Yes. And that in Ireland it's read through stories and poetry Mm. and in the native tradition in Australia it's read through drawing and painting, a rock art. I wanted to ask you something though, do you think a literary tradition is likely to change more than an oral tradition? I think that despite our instincts that it is, that literary tradition is looking for something that makes sense to the people of its time, whereas an oral tradition will retain 
what was there, even when it doesn't necessarily satisfy the criteria of its time. Doesn't this make the Denhienicus poems and stories something of a rather precious resource? It does, because I think that the poems, as well as a wonderful prose text like the Oglev Nishinorok... Yeah, that, we haven't really... We should be including which, that. Yeah, but which we will be going into in looking yeah. at Finn, as we said. That it reflects a kind of a cusp between an oral and a literary, that it still retains those oral features of having different versions uh, relating to the same point. Yeah, so you can have more than landscape. one way of telling the story. Exactly. In fact, in one case, three ways of telling the yeah, story. Yeah, as we just And saw. there's no contradiction in this. Exactly. Uh, yeah. In the same way as, I suppose, uh, a rock art drawn in 1964 reflects an ancient tradition very clearly. Exactly. So you've got, you know, an oral tradition would cope with contradictory ways of telling a story. Yeah, and we've seen how long oral elements in a story can last. Um, when we looked at the story of Nera and compared it to the story of Tygo Cain, of um, versions yeah. that were brought into the literary tradition. For beginners, that's if you're... the one, yeah. that's the one. But th these are stories which were brought into a literary tradition a thousand years apart, mm -hmm. and yet retained the same elements of oral telling when it was looking at uh, the traditions to do with foot water and fire mm. smoring, that those are the elements that they didn't change over mm -hmm. those thousand years even though the literary expressions mm. of them were very different because mm -hmm. they were created at different times. Although, I'm sadly, as we've said, an oral tradition in Ireland is now... It's definitely gone, it's definitely yeah. passed. Except in a very everyday sense. Mm. And there's one thing I do want to say before we finish, yeah. is that uh, I am not. we are not saying in any sense mm. that the Irish and Australian traditions are directly connected. God, no. In fact, far from it. They I mean, can't be. The, the, it's just a totally different environment. Yeah. Uh, but there are parallel developments. Yeah, and in, in some ways it's the difference in the environment, it's the difference between the Australian experience of the environment and the Irish that actually shows us those parallel processes. Mm. And I think what I'd say most is that uh, they really have helped me to see how deep-rooted our stories are in time and in the landscape. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>